Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello. Hello. Yeah, that's good. Oh, you're getting in on the intro. Huh? <laughs> uh, this is another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. That was Catherine Rubino from Above the Law talking. This is Joe Patrice talking. Hi. Oh, hi. You know, I feel like sometimes that we at Above the Law need to, us, Stacy, the regular editors, I view us sometimes as a almost like an elite strike team of law. <laughs> um, if, so if you... Uh, if you don't know what that's a reference to, that elite strike Congratulations. team. Congratulations. You've uh, yeah. You've been in Iraq. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, the elite strike team is the official name, apparently, official? of the Trump legal team. That would be Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, and Sidney Powell. Ooh. Oops. Not so much anymore. Not so fast. Yeah, it appears as though Sidney Powell has been relieved of her duties on the elite strike team. Which, so here's a question. Mm-hmm. What kind of batshit crazy stuff <laughs> was Sidney Powell saying behind the scenes to get booted from this team? Fun fact, it wasn't behind the scenes. It was the stuff <laughs> she was saying out loud. The legal team has a number of largely dubious legal claims that they're currently making, but Sidney had the most explosive ones. Uh, She's the one who continually says that Hugo Chavez hacked the election from beyond the grave, mind you, and had computer voting machines change votes, even though the computer voting machines she's complaining about were not the machines in the jurisdictions that they say went the wrong way. Anyway, it was some stuff. But honestly, I think the real thing that put an end to her involvement with the team was that she decided to jump on the Doug Collins train and argue that Kelly Leffler actually shouldn't have finished second in the Georgia runoff, that it should have been Doug Collins. And so she's like going to take down Kelly Leffler. And I think that was the point when the mainstream of the Republican group, who has more or less humored these legal challenges, said, well, wait a minute, now she's going to botch our chances in Georgia. I mean... Now, I think that was the end of her run as part of the official legal team. It's a pretty decent argument that the series of largely baseless legal claims are going to botch the Republicans' chances in Georgia anyway. There's quite a bit of anger over the series of challenges. And if anything, it's just motivating folks in Georgia more, which yeah. you yeah. know, can only help the Democrats. Yeah, I guess. But whatever. Nonetheless, so elite strike team. I guess. We should come up with some like um some superhero. Oh no, this etch. is like Civil War. Oh, she's like so the. So you don't mean the American Civil War? No, I mean like the comic book. Like she's like the right, she's right. like the Captain America of the. Uh, uh, does she have to be Captain America? Yeah, because the official government side was the Iron Man side, mm-hmm. so she's the rogue from that. So I think that puts her in that role. I guess. I I got you're also not talking very much about the way it was portrayed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? But no, but well, I'm not. Although, but that it it was portrayed similar enough, at least on that front. Yeah, you know, because you are in fact a comic book nerd. I I I don't feel like that's fair, but I don't also think it's a bad thing. Listen, my niece is very interested in 
comic books and superheroes at the moment, so I'm mm-hmm. trying to to foster this kind of yeah. thing. For yeah, her. no, I mean, you have a fairly deep knowledge of this, too, <laughs> as much as you're trying to pin this on me. <laughs> uh, but no, so, so yeah. But I think that going forward, every large legal team should absolutely adopt some sort of superhero moniker, right? It, it's just more fun. Like, you know, like how you have like a listserv that's like the blank case distro. Instead of that, it should be like, you know, Wonder Twins or yeah. Falcon yeah. Justice. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, this is, I'd be interested to like spin out whether or not this was more like a Powerpuff Girls team or mm. a, yeah, no. But I, but I, going forward, I, I think that they should all always, like every single MDL should have a code name. Okay. Don't okay. you think? See, I feel like that was an idea that some lawyers in the past had and uh, then Enron happened and we learned what's wrong with doing uh. that. Yeah, see, for those who don't know how Enron ended, don't worry, you'll have the opportunity anytime you test out legal technology, because every data set in every e-discovery demo ever (laughs) is the Enron (laughs) stuff. But yeah, no, they they created team names for themselves and cute little names for their special vehicles, and they were largely damning for what they were actually trying to do, so... I don't remember what they actually were, because I'm younger than you are, but... I mean, there were a bunch. There were a lot of Star Wars-based ones, but they were a lot of, uh, like, sly references to this not being necessarily a great idea, Um, (laughs) and they went ahead and did that anyway, you know? But enough about that side of legal technology, more positive side of legal technology. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Is it coming? I think it's coming. If you work with contracts... If you work with contracts and don't use contract tools, you're missing a lot. Save time, make more money, and do a better job for your clients with contract tools by paper software. Contract tools is the most powerful word add-in for working with contracts. Thousands of lawyers all over the world rely on contract tools every day for every kind of deal. Visit papersoftware.com to watch a demo and get a free trial. As a special offer to podcast listeners, use coupon code LTN2020 to get one month free. That's papersoftware.com and LTN2020. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. So what else has been going on in the world? Man, I can't keep weaving two more thoughts in my head. I don't remember. What, what's been going on? I don't know. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse got oh, bail. Oh, God. That was awful. No wonder I've forgotten it. So, yes. Um, so Ricky Schroeder. Um, I mean, come on. Of Silver Spoons fame. I mean, and also NYPD Blue, but I mean, let's just let's let's face it. Silver spoons. Silver spoons. Silver spoons. Yeah. So uh, Ricky Schroeder bailed out, and the My Pillow guy. Well, yeah, but that guy, that uh, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. but they they bailed out uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the Kenosha shooter, the kid who Fucking... used a stimulus check. It turned out to buy his machine gun to go up and uh, kill innocent people. So that was that. But he got bailed. Now, There's... I know people are upset about this. I I have a mixed feelings about it because I do think I am one of these people who doesn't think that cash bail is a very good thing. I think that you should either you should either decide somebody is a flight risk and has to be held in jail or you should say they should be able to go free but you should not be having these like mm-hmm. we're going to hold them and we'll do it by making it 2 million dollars because you know they'll find a way with the help of Ricky, uh, Ricky Stratton. What was his name in the... In the show? I don't yeah. know. Maybe Stratton? doesn't matter. The point is that I see It absolutely you're... does matter, Catherine. Okay, well, yeah, you have on. the internet. You can figure <laughs> this out. You don't have to... 
involved me in the process. But, mm. but listen, I mean, I understand. Is was it Stratton? Ricky Stratton. Of course, yeah, freaking was. Okay. <laughs> Of course it was. And of course his name was Ricky because he couldn't manage to remember any other freaking name in his mm. little pea-brained head. Anyway, the point is that, yes, there are obviously problems with the cash bail system. I, I completely agree with you on that front. But it seems to me that like the ways in which we fight against it should not be this is not the case to make that argument, right? There are millions of cases around the country which are probably a better example of why cash bail is terrible and it's not, you know, a white supremacist shooter. There you go. I don't think that that needs to be the one that we make our, we kind of plant the cash bail reform flag in. Yeah, no, I mean, again, I totally. I'm just saying that when I hear people say, you know, it's awful that, that he made bail, I feel like this is kind of the wrong discussion in my mind. I feel like the discussion shouldn't be, look at all these rich people gave him money to give him bail. The question is, do you think that he needed to be pretrial detained or not? And the question of bail is just a question of money at that point. Well, I, it's, well it's sure, the but old... I mean, I do think that it is a very powerful example of sort of the two Americas, right? Well, that, yeah, sure. And, and, and a lot of social media are comparing Kyle Rittenhouse to uh, Khalif Browder, you know, who mm -hmm. was held in Rikers for years for allegedly trying to steal a, a backpack. And when he was finally released, you know, had, had a ton of issues as a result of his time in Rikers mm -hmm. because he allegedly stole a backpack. Like, the fact that there are two Americas... The fact that, that the cash bail system is not equitably um, rolled out is is real, and I think that it's a particularly powerful example of that. See, but but that's kind of my point, too, is, right, the, the, the two Americas exist because we put a dollar figure on whether or not you get to be released pretrial, and that's the problem, because mm -hmm. you put a dollar figure, and then rich people get to buy their way out, or people who can have access to things, and other folks don't, which is why, despite the insane ramblings of the New York Post and its ilk, the move to get rid of cash bail in New York State has been a very good thing because mm -hmm. it, it takes away the question of, can you buy your way out of this? Or can you successfully go fund me your way out of this? And turns it into a, is someone an actual flight risk or not? Right. And there's not a middle ground anymore to say, oh, well, you're two million dollars risk. should have been able to keep you in jail indefinitely, but now we're risk mad that up to two million dollars. Right. Like no, you you either are a risk or not, and that doesn't suggest that you know pretrial detention isn't going to happen and bad things come from it, but it you know makes it a little bit more palatable, I think. But anyway, yeah. Was there anything good that happened this week? At least good? No, no. It's twenty twenty. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> no, nothing good happened. Oh, that's yeah. no, I mean, accurate, I, but deeply upsetting at the same time. I mean, you know, we're hearing a little bit more about some, you know, rollbacks of salary decreases, some like increased work from home stuff, some more bonuses, you know, the, economically things are getting a little bit better. And it makes you wonder how have firms weathered previous economic downturns that come out stronger on the other side? Well, LexisNexis Interaction has released an in-depth global research report confronting the 2020 downturn, lessons learned during previous economic crises. Download your free copy at interaction.com slash like a lawyer to see tips, strategies, plans, and statistics from leaders who have been through this before and how they've reached success again. Yeah. yeah Good yeah. job. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, my favorite part of that ad read always is the word crises. I, I feel oh, like yeah? that's a, yeah, I, that I, a I don't one? know, something like it, it, it just... 
you know, it seems like a little upper crust for me to be saying like, oh, not a crisis. It's crises. <laughs> I Make, think that was entirely in your head. And no, I'm here enough. for it. I'm here for it, though. I, I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like Ricky Stratton. Uh, first time. Yeah. No. You know what I've, I, I was just trying to do, but I failed to do? I was trying to find the Silver Spoons theme song to play right there, but... Better luck next time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. As a kid, now we're just kind of going off. As a kid, I remember John Houseman was in that show, and I remember thinking that, like, oh, this is this is like the thing that guy does. He had a career, like, before that. Really? And actually, like, did real stuff. But, you know, this is how my brain now only thinks of him as the grandpa on Silver Spoons. Oh, well. Which is a show, of course, I saw in reruns decades after the fact because I was clearly not old enough to have watched it in the first run. <laughs> Sell us another one, Mr. Simpson's uh, references. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the only other thing that I can think of that happened, if you don't have anything else to discuss, is that William Barr, the oh. uh, attorney general, uh, it turns out a recent report has dug into and found that Caterpillar, the construction company was in the midst of a 2.3 billion dollar tax case which was being that's weird i haven't heard a lot about that case against them yeah you haven't uh it was being aggressively pursued by the it actually spans administrations but the jeff sessions run justice department was still going forward investigating it Mm -hmm. and caterpillar's attorney was bill barr as it turns out convenient for them interestingly this case which was aggressively pursued for years. Uh, Grand jury had already weighed in to say that, you know, Mm -hmm. go forward, basically. And uh, Bill Barr became the attorney general, and the case was dropped a week later. Magic. Magic, yeah. Um, It is, uh, it's one of those stories that when I saw it, I thought, this is the problem with the world right now, because- When everything's on fire. When everything's on fire, you don't see- That little trash fire over there doesn't look that bad. Yeah, no, and as it was being buried underneath Rudy Giuliani literally melting on camera, I just thought, well, this is a shame, because this strikes me as way more serious as far as long-term- faith in the Justice Department goes than the elite strike team's (laughs) joke. They're not even like the real, like they're like the Great Lakes Avengers. They're like not (laughs) even the good kind. Yeah. Which makes Sidney Powell Squirrel Girl, I think. Anyway, the point is... Oh, do you know that they actually have figures like you can buy a squirrel girl like Barbie? It's not Barbie, but it's like an action figure that's like Nice. I, I did not know that. I mean... Fantastic character. Well, it's it's good thing that my um, eight-year-old niece does not listen to this podcast because she might have an inkling as to uh, what Ann Cat Cat's got on the agenda. Hey, Squirrel Girl beat Dr. Doom once, so. That is true. Yeah. So, I mean. It it, could happen. Anyway. Point is, uh, long term, this seems like a huge problem to have an attorney general who comes into office and uh, bails out their own clients. And what really gets me about it is even if there was some reason why this case should go away, Look, Rod Rosenstein doesn't deserve much credit for anything. No, uh-uh. uh But Rod Rosenstein, like, very public, and Jeff Sessions, too, they both very publicly got themselves in trouble by 
adhering at least to the bare minimum of ethical standards while running the yes, justice department. Yes, well, when department. people get criticized for doing the bare minimum, yeah, like then looked, of course you're going to have some people who are who are not even going to do the bare minimum. And, and that's really the thing. Like, it, like, give those people as much flack as they deserve for the things they did. But mm-hmm. where there were situations where Sessions was a potential fact witness in a matter, he couldn't do it. Uh, he made a point of that. Rosenstein took over and he felt he couldn't do it, hands it to Mueller. Like that whole process was at least an attempt to transparently suggest that the Justice Department has some measure of independence. Right. If you are the attorney for a company that is under a $2.3 billion criminal investigation, when you become the attorney general, even if there's a risk that this case is going to be dropped, you have to make a very public and showy effort to say, to I am not involved in this right. decision. It has to be like, even if the FBI was going to drop it the next day, you have to put a hold on that. You have to make sure an independent person looks at it and decides. Like, you do these things because you care about the system. And well, the I mean, fact that, that none of this happened. You, 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 yeah. have to, you have to care about the system. As the a fact prerequisite. that none of this happened is a is really, really problematic. And it's, I mean, listen, I think the damage, you kind of jokingly, I think, said that the the damage to lawyers as a result of the Trump administration is going to take decades to overcome, but it's it's real. It's not a joke. Well, I mean, that was that was a comment I made about that press conference, and that's just the reputation of lawyers. <laughs> like, and not about the administration. It, it's just like after watching that press conference, we as a profession is, are going to have to spend years saying, no, see, we can't bring claims when there's no evidence. And no, it's not an answer to a question <laughs> to say, oh, but we don't want to show you our evidence. <laughs> uh, you know, normal scrutiny is not a thing. But alas, you know, obviously, there's the great strict scrutiny podcast. I feel like I almost feel like our podcast is the normal scrutiny podcast. <laughs> it's like they, they like. Like, it should be a thing. Like but... actual academics talking about the law is strict scrutiny. And then we're over here providing you your normal scrutiny podcast. I like you know? it. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I think we're ready to bring on our guest and talk about some stuff. So earlier today, we learned that the North Carolina bar is moving to an online bar exam in February. Uh, they famously... I was going to had... say, it, is this... This is this news? Oh, well, they they famously stuck with an in-person exam mm. uh, in July, which a lot of us criticized at the time. Now they've realized that it's time to move online. And only getting worse. Yes. And so while we have a lot of problems with all that, um, <laughs> and online, while better than in-person, also isn't great. What a lot of mm-hmm. what's happened this year, uh, for those who've been following Above the Law or listening to the show, a lot of what we've been talking about is how the pandemic has caused kind of a stress test on the whole concept of the bar exam. And maybe there are things about how we license people in uh, in all the jurisdictions around this country that probably could be changed and be better. And with that in mind, I wanted to bring in our guest, because we have Aaron Taylor from uh, Access Lex, who uh, you all just were part of and help sponsor a new study that looks at these questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So walk us through a bit about the study. I mean, it, it is a it is a big study. Uh, like it's uh, a lot of material. I know Professor Merritt was involved. Friend of the show, Kyle McDee was involved. Like tons of people mm-hmm. were involved in getting this report together to talk about this. So walk us through what happened there. Yeah, I mean, you say it's a big study. It's big both uh, literally and figuratively uh, <laughs> with a hundred something pages and, and just the topic itself is, is so important. Uh, so historically, there's just been a dearth of good empirical research on legal education and the manner in which 
we license lawyers. And so this this study was really just asking a basic question. What is minimum competence to practice law? Because, of course, that's the entire premise of bar exams to assess the extent to which somebody is minimally competent to be allowed into the profession. And that concept had really never been defined. Bar exams themselves have not been proven to serve the effect of of keeping bad lawyers out of the profession. And so the study really wanted to just dig into what does that look like in the context of the actual practice of law? And it did it by asking lawyers about what competencies do they use in their everyday work. Yeah. I mean, one thing that we've talked about on this show uh, when we've been complaining about bar exams is it's just... I mean, when we're talking about minimum competency, it's also a question of like minimum competency to do what uh, the age right. of the generalist lawyer in a lot of ways is is gone. I mean, it's it's rare that, you know, as a litigator, I needed to know how real estate transactions are closed and so on and so forth. And yet we test everybody as though they have to have a closed book command for one uh, mm-hmm. couple of days of their life, a command of all these different areas. Um yeah. And it's just so crazy. And, and it's it's not only command of it, but command of it without any resources to double check your knowledge and make sure that it's actually correct. I mean, the bar exam in many ways is built on the premise of the, the retail lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. the lawyer who essentially takes in whatever comes through the door and handles it. It's kind of like it puts me in the mind of Mayberry from yeah. Andy, Andy Griffin. <laughs> so I'm, I'm dating myself uh, a bit, but that's the premise of it. And like you said, the profession is much different now. Uh, One of the interesting findings of this study, as well as others that have been done recently, is that skills and abilities are much more important than than substantive knowledge of law, right? Because, I mean, hey, if you have sufficient ability to do legal research, you can find out what the law says, right? And so it really does harken back a time that no longer exists, the current iterations of the bar exam. A line that I've used in some of my stuff that has taken on a, it's become kind of a a phrase that some of the diploma privileged people toss around on social media, quoting me, but it, the practice of law is an open book exam. You are, yep. you are never in a situation where something comes yep. up and the lawyer is applauded for saying, I refuse to look that up. I'm just going to trust that I'm right. Well, I mean, there there is, a, of course, a Supreme Court nomination or process well, right. where, yes, where exactly. there was a lot well, of... <laughs> yeah, well, put, putting well, aside well, ACB, mean, yeah. Well, and, and you rightly, I think, criticized folks who were like, aha, gotcha, you don't know the First Amendment freedoms by yeah. saying there's never an instance where you need to know any of that off the top of your head if you have yeah. access yeah. to Lexis and Westlaw or KSEX or whatever. Yeah. And what I liked about this exam is one of the first points it makes is that closed book exams seem like a bad way of testing minimum competence if your goal is to test the minimum competence of somebody to be a lawyer in a realistic world. Absolutely. It's it's not only bad, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, there, there's there's literally no worse way to do that. And, and so I used to, my first job out of law school was with the Office of Bar Counsel in D.C. It's now the Office of, of Bar Discipline, I think it is. But essentially, they're the folks who investigate allegations of ethical misconduct. Yeah. And we had a saying that if a lawyer practices law in the same way that we required them to analyze legal issues on the bar exam, they will have a complaint before us very soon after they got their license because it just simply does not reflect reality. And it really goes to, you know, this entire notion of using the bar exam to exclude 
as opposed to using the bar exam as an actual tool to make sure that our profession is as best as it can be. So in some ways, it's philosophical. It was never meant to be, at least I don't think it was never meant to be a good way of assessing people. I think it was meant to be mainly a way to exclude people. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to pivot from the closed book issue to the performance test issue. We've talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about this, but one of the elements of the report is about performance tests and how those are different. So what would a performance test look like? Right. So, uh, of course, you have the multi-state performance test, the MPT. And essentially, the way it's structured is the test taker gets kind of like a constructed universe, if you will. So they get a packet of materials that purport to be, say, like a legal case file. And some of the materials are directly relevant to the call of the question. Other materials are irrelevant to it. And it's on the test taker to sift through what's relevant, what's not relevant, and then among what's relevant, really get to what's being asked uh, as part of the problem. And so that most closely replicates what lawyers do, because irrespective of what type of law you're practicing, you're going to have materials that you have to review. You're going to have to figure out what's relevant, what's not, and then you're going to have to solve whatever the issue is that you're facing. So it's broadly applicable and it's, it, it aligns most closely with reality. Yeah. You'll always have something to read. And and the ability to show that you, I mean, we get a little bit of this with some of the reading comprehension questions, but the ability to see documents and pull out of them what's valuable right. is yeah. the whole point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the whole yeah. minimum competency. Yeah. yeah. And there are many ways to assess that. The question is, what's the most efficient way, mm-hmm. right? And what's the most direct way? And it seems to me and, and many others uh, that the MPT, the more performance tests, thing is the best way to do it. Also, just just experiential learning. So externships, other things, client simulations, you know, there are other ways to exhibit these skills as well. But essay exams and multiple choice exams aren't the best way, though they still may get to those skills indirectly. Yeah. One one of the concerns I always have with, uh, I'm one of those folks who believes in more externships and so on and so forth. And I recognize that You know, it's hard enough sometimes to get a job in the legal world and now to force people to have to get a job uh, could be an issue. But it also, the flip side of it is, of course, people who may not on paper seem like someone a firm wants to give a salary to, you know, can demonstrate by showing up that, you know, I just had a bad LSAT. I'm really fully competent Mm -hmm. and they get that opportunity through a lower stakes externship. It just seems like it's a longer term process to transition to, but seems like one that if we had the will, would be a better option. <laughs> yeah. And and having that type of experience to distract from other factors that may not be in the applicant's favor, uh, as you said, could give them a leg up. But then it also could, for the firms, really show them who has the best chance of thriving in the practice of yeah. law as opposed to who is just the best student in the classroom. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I guess the question going forward, uh, now people are going to have this report in front of them and we'll have a link somewhere for this to make sure that this gets out uh, and people get a chance to look. What's going to be, are there any any jurisdictions that seem like they might be primed for hearing this sort of discussion, Mm -hmm. Uh, might be interested, be the first test cases that we might be able to lobby to make a change? Well, I don't know of any specifically as it relates to this report, but I can tell you California is really going about a very in-depth process of questioning all the assumptions about its bar exam and the extent to which it aligns with 
uh, the practice of law in that state. And, and I think they're about to impanel a blue ribbon commission to talk about the future of the bar exam and to really make uh, recommendations to the Supreme Court of California about what the exam should look like. And I'm sure there are other jurisdictions as well, but that's the most high profile um, one. One of the recommendations out of this report is that there should be a panel of experts brought together to actually design kind of like an ideal or prototypical bar exam or means of testing lawyers for purposes of bar admission. And, and so I think both of those things can flow together. You can have jurisdictions, re, you know, looking at their own ways of doing this, but then you can also have this separate group that can maybe put out model best practices on mm. bar examinations or something along those lines. Yeah. And while it's important to have models, a lot of us worry that we kind of went the opposite direction for a while and we we kind of homogenized the test in ways right. that are not particularly productive. It's one thing to have a model that everyone should follow and another to dictate to every jurisdiction, these are the questions right. you have to use. Yeah, yeah. And it's somewhat of an irony because the uniform bar exam, for instance, that's been a great thing for test takers because it allows them to port their scores to other jurisdictions, of course, subject to what score they got. But but you're right, just because a, an exam works in one state doesn't mean it works in another. And so jurisdictions really have to look at their own ways of going about this. Yeah. Well, and also the just as a matter of of efficiency, I think the people behind the UBE aren't really thinking about a lot of the ideas that are in this report. They're right. they're very tied to multiple choice closed book questions are easy. So let's do that. And that's kind of exacerbated. Easy some of these for the problems. greater at the very least. Yeah, e e easy from their perspective. Yes. Uh, which, <laughs> right. is, which has exacerbated a lot of these problems. It, it really has been um, like one of the weird silver linings as awful as that is of how this pandemic has gone is that we've gotten a, a real stress mm -hmm. test. Of, and, that, and that's actually what, what I was thinking. A lot of these issues obviously have been festering for a lot longer than the pandemic. Uh, you know, you pointed out California, uh, they've been doing a lot of work on the bar exam because of outrage over yeah, <laughs> their, right. their very, it's a very difficult test to pass. A lot of it's not even based on, but based on percentages as opposed to competency uh, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of that stuff. But, but Obviously, COVID has changed that and has created a stressor. What is the ways in which you see COVID or the future of sort of online exams playing into the way the bar exam will go forward or ideally would go forward? Well, my, my general philosophy is with crisis often comes opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there's very often good that can come out of, of crisis circumstances. And in this case, it is that we've not only been forced to question, but we've been forced to do things differently uh, in many cases. Uh, as it relates to online bar exams, I mean, you know, it's hard to put technology back in the box. <laughs> you know, once, once you open it up and once you start to use it and starts to work out the kinks associated with it, it becomes a part of your life. So I, I suspect that online examinations, whether you're talking about the bar exam, whether you're talking about the LSAT, may possibly be the future of bar examining. Now, obviously, jurisdictions have very different philosophies about a whole lot of things. So you will have jurisdictions that stick to the traditional tech, but you will have many others that go on and do online exams more or less indefinitely. Yeah. As Homer Simpson eloquently put it, crisis-tunity. Um, exactly. But yeah, no. Um. You have a, a Simpsons joke for 
pretty much everything. It, it's hard <laughs> not to. I mean, yeah. they've been on long enough. You can usually years, find right? it. Yeah, right. Dude, you're still watching it. <laughs> that's impressive. Uh, but it's like no. your longest commitment ever. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so... Yes. No, this is great. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to put out links to this report. I think we're going to be dissecting a lot of what's in here for a long time. I read Mm -hmm. through it over the last couple of days. And even I think I probably need to sit down and have a real, (laughs) real in-depth read of it to uh, get everything out. Um, But thank you so much, Aaron Taylor from Access Lex, who was uh, one of the folks involved in this process. And uh, hopefully we will have some bar exam uh, reform in the future. Sounds good to me. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Thank Thank you. you so much. Okay. So... Thank you so much for listening. You should be subscribed to this show. If you're just listening to it through the Above the Law website, that's wonderful, but we would prefer you to subscribe. That way we can convince people, no, you really are here every week, and you would get your updates every week. Then give it some reviews, some stars, some words about it. Weigh in on how you feel about Squirrel Girl, whatever it is. Uh, Any words there like shows engagement, and that helps people know that this podcast exists and uh, is out there talking about law. You should be reading Above the Law, as always, because we have coverage of these issues as well as many more every day. You should be following us on social media. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She is at Catherine One, the numeral one. I love your hand signals now. Like, I, I, I say the same thing every week, but you put up a, a finger <laughs> I know, for it's one. it's not even a video. I get it. Yeah. I do, but, but I mean, it, I, I love your commitment to, to directing, you know. That's... <laughs> well, you know, you are forgetful, so, mm. in your old age. Mm. Mm. See, don't come for me. I'll, I don't even know. I'll the, back. Yeah. I don't even know the lyrics to the Silver Spoon theme song anymore. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, you should be listening to The Jabot, which is Catherine's show uh, talking about diversity in the law firm world. Uh, you can check out Legal Tech Week, which is my uh, legal tech-related roundtable with other legal tech journalists. You should be listening to the other offerings of the Legal Talk Network. There are too many even to mention. Uh, you should be checking out papersoftware.com and contract tools. Uh, Remember that code is LTN 2020. And with all of that said, I think we're done. You can go order whatever it is you clearly are trying to order online right now. I have. Oh, good. Well, see, there you go. I'm happy for you. It's like Cyber Monday. Mm, Oh, right. Yeah. It's not. But they're doing it early because of the pandemic. Yeah. Okay, fine. It's a Monday and I'm buying something over the cyber isn't isn't any monday really a cyber monday if you want it to be that's what i'm saying amazing all right we're done here (laughs) if you'd like more information about what you've heard today please visit legaltalknetwork.com you can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, atlredline.com itunes rss twitter and facebook The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.